Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Semaglutide in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and obesity. Background Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is increasing in prevalence and is associated with a high symptom burden and functional impairment, especially in persons with obesity. No therapies have been approved to target obesity-related heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Methods We randomly assigned 529 patients who had heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and a body mass index, the weight in kilograms divided by the square of the height in meters, of 30 or higher to receive once weekly semaglutide, 2.4 milligrams, or placebo for 52 weeks. The dual primary endpoints were the change from baseline in the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire Clinical Summary Score, KCCQ-CSS, scores range from 0 to 100, with higher scores indicating fewer symptoms and physical limitations, and the change in body weight. Confirmatory secondary endpoints included the change in the 6-minute walk distance, a hierarchical composite endpoint that included death, heart failure events, and differences in the change in the KCCQ CSS and 6-minute walk distance, and the change in the C-reactive protein, CRP, level. Results The mean change in the KCCQ CSS was 16.6 points with semaglutide and 8.7 points with placebo, estimated difference, 7.8 points, 95% confidence interval, C 4.8 to 10.9, P less than 0.001, and the mean percentage change in body weight was minus 13.3% with semaglutide and minus 2.6% with placebo, estimated difference, minus 10.7 percentage points. 95% C, minus 11.9 to minus 9.4, P less than 0.001. The mean change in the 6-minute walk distance was 21.5 meters with semaglutide and 1.2 meters with placebo, estimated difference, 20.3 meters, 95% C, 8.6 to 32.1, P less than 0.001. In the analysis of the hierarchical composite endpoint, semaglutide produced more wins than placebo, Win ratio, 1.72, 95% C, 1.37 to 2.15, P less than 0.001. The mean percentage change in the CRP level was minus 43.5% with semaglutide and minus 7.3% with placebo. Estimated treatment ratio, 0.61, 95% C, 0.51 to 0.72, P less than 0.001. Serious adverse events were reported in 35 participants, 13.3%, in the semaglutide group and 71, 26.7%, in the placebo group. Conclusions In patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and obesity, treatment with semaglutide, 
2.4 mg, led to larger reductions in symptoms and physical limitations, greater improvements in exercise function, and greater weight loss than placebo. Inhaled fluticasone furor weight for outpatient treatment of COVID-19. Background The effectiveness of inhaled glucocorticoids in shortening the time to symptom resolution or preventing hospitalization or death among outpatients with mild to moderate coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19, is unclear. Methods We conducted a decentralized, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled platform trial in the United States to assess the use of repurposed medications in outpatients with confirmed coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19. Non-hospitalized adults 30 years of age or older who had at least two symptoms of acute infection that had been present for no more than seven days before enrollment were randomly assigned to receive inhaled fluticasone furoate at a dose of 200 g once daily for 14 days or placebo. The primary outcome was the time to sustained recovery, defined as the third of three consecutive days without symptoms. Key secondary outcomes included hospitalization or death by day 28 and a composite outcome of the need for an urgent care or emergency department visit or hospitalization or death through day 28. Results Of the 1,407 enrolled participants who underwent randomization, 715 were assigned to receive inhaled fluticasone furoate and 692 to receive placebo, and 656 and 621, respectively were included in the analysis. There was no evidence that the use of fluticasone furoate resulted in a shorter time to recovery than placebo, hazard ratio, 1.01, 95% credible interval, 0.91 to 1.12, posterior probability of benefit, defined as a hazard ratio greater than 1, 0.56. A total of 24 participants, 3.7%, in the fluticasone furor weight group had urgent care or emergency department visits, or were hospitalized, as compared with 13 participants, 2.1%, in the placebo group, hazard ratio, 1.9, 95% credible interval, 0.8 to 3.5. Three participants in each group were hospitalized, and no deaths occurred. Adverse events were uncommon in both groups. Conclusions Treatment with inhaled fluticasone furoate for 14 days did not result in a shorter time to recovery than placebo among outpatients with COVID-19 in the United States. Trial of solanezumab in preclinical Alzheimer's disease. Methods We tested solanezumab, which targets monomeric amyloid, in a phase 3 trial involving persons with preclinical Alzheimer's disease. Persons 65 to 85 years of age with a global clinical dementia rating score of 0, range, 0 to 3, with 0 indicating no cognitive impairment and 3 severe dementia, a score on the mini mental state examination of 25 or more, range, 0 to 30, with lower scores indicating poorer cognition, and elevated brain amyloid levels on 18F floor beta positron emission tomography, PET, were enrolled. Participants were randomly assigned in a 1 to 1 ratio to receive solanezumab at a dose of up to 1,600 mg intravenously every 4 weeks or placebo. The primary endpoint was the change in the preclinical Alzheimer cognitive composite, PACC, score, calculated as the sum of four Z scores, with higher scores indicating better cognitive performance, over a period of 240 weeks. Results A total of 1,169 persons underwent randomization, 578 were assigned to the solanezumab group and 591 to the placebo group. 
The mean age of the participants was 72 years, approximately 60% were women, and 75% had a family history of dementia. At 240 weeks, the mean change in PAC score was minus 1.43 in the solanizumab group and minus 1.13 in the placebo group, difference, minus 0.30, 95% confidence interval, minus 0.82 to 0.22, P equals 0.26. Amyloid levels on brain PET increased by a mean of 11.6 centaloids in the solanizumab group and 19.3 centaloids in the placebo group. Amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, ARIA, with edema occurred in less than 1% of the participants in each group. Aria with microhemorrhage or hemosiderosis occurred in 29.2% of the participants in the solanizumab group and 32.8% of those in the placebo group. Conclusions Solanizumab, which targets monomeric amyloid in persons with elevated brain amyloid levels, did not slow cognitive decline as compared with placebo over a period of 240 weeks in persons with preclinical Alzheimer's disease. Comparative safety analysis of oral antipsychotics for in-hospital adverse clinical events in older adults after major surgery. Background Antipsychotics are commonly used to manage postoperative delirium. Recent studies reported that haloperidol use has declined, and atypical antipsychotic use has increased over time. Objective. To compare the risk for in-hospital adverse events associated with oral haloperidol, olanzapine, putiapine, and risperidone in older patients after major surgery. Design. Retrospective cohort study. Patients. 17,115 patients aged 65 years and older without psychiatric disorders who were prescribed an oral antipsychotic drug after major surgery from 2009 to 2018. Interventions. Haloperidol, less than or equal to 4 mg on the day of initiation, olanzapine, less than or equal to 10 mg, quetiapine, less than or equal to 150 mg, and risperidone, less than or equal to 4 mg. Measurements. The risk ratios, RRs, for in-hospital death, cardiac arrhythmia events, pneumonia, and stroke or transient ischemic attack, TIA, were estimated at a propensity score overlap weighting. Results The weighted population had a mean age of 79.6 years, was 60.5% female, and had in hospital death of 3.1%. Among the four antipsychotics, quetiapine was the most prescribed, 53.0% of total exposure. There was no statistically significant difference in the risk for in hospital death among patients treated with haloperidol, 3.7%. Reference group, olanzapine, 2.8%, RR, 0.74, 95% C, 0.42 to 1.27, quetiapine, 2.6%, RR, 0.70 C, 0.47 to 1.04, and risperidone, 3.3%, RR, 0.90 C, 0.53 to 1.41. The risk for non-fatal clinical events ranged from 2.0% to 2.6% for a cardiac arrhythmia event, 4.2% to 4.6% for pneumonia, and 0.6% to 1.2% for stroke or TIA, with no statistically significant differences by treatment group. Limitation Residual confounding by delirium severity, lack of untreated group, restriction to oral low to moderate dose treatment. Conclusion 
These results suggest that atypical antipsychotics and haloperidol have similar rates of in-hospital adverse clinical events in older patients with postoperative delirium who receive an oral low-to-moderate-dose antipsychotic drug. Next article is from September Issues of Annals of Internal Medicine. The effect of low-dose glucocorticoids over two years on weight and blood pressure in rheumatoid arthritis, individual patient data from five randomized trials. Background Weight gain and hypertension are well-known adverse effects of treatment with high-dose glucocorticoids. Objective To evaluate the effects of two years of low-dose glucocorticoid treatment in rheumatoid arthritis, RA. Design Pooled analysis of five randomized controlled trials with two-year interventions allowing concomitant treatment with disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. Setting 12 countries in Europe Patients Early and established RA Intervention Glucocorticoids at 7.5 mg or less prednisone equivalent per day Measurements Co-primary endpoints were differences in change from baseline in body weight and mean arterial pressure after two years in intention to treat analyzes. Difference in the change of number of antihypertensive drugs after two years was a secondary endpoint. Subgroup and sensitivity analyzes were done to assess the robustness of primary findings. Results A total of 1,112 participants were included, mean age, 61.4 years, SD, 14.5, 68% women. Both groups gained weight in two years, but glucocorticoids led, on average, to 1.1 kg, 95% C, 0.4 to 1.8 kg, P less than 0.001, more weight gain than the controlled treatment. Mean arterial pressure increased by about 2 mm Hg in both groups, with a between group difference of minus 0.4 mm Hg, C, minus 3.0 to 2.2 mm Hg, P equals 0.187. These results were consistent in sensitivity and subgroup analyzes. Most patients did not change the number of antihypertensive drugs, and there was no evidence of differences between groups. Conclusion This study provides robust evidence that low-dose glucocorticoids, received over two years for the treatment of RA, increase weight by about 1 kg but do not increase blood pressure. Next article is from September Issues of Annals of Internal Medicine Social, Behavioral, and Metabolic Risk Factors and Racial Disparities in Cardiovascular Disease Mortality in U.S. Adults. Background Cardiovascular disease, CVD, mortality is persistently higher in the black population than in other racial and ethnic groups in the United States. Objective to examine the degree to which social, behavioral, and metabolic risk factors are associated with CVD mortality and the extent to which racial differences in CVD mortality persist after these factors are accounted for. Design Prospective Cohort Study Setting NHANES, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, 1999-2018 Participants a nationally representative sample of 5,808 persons aged 20 years or older. Measurements. Data on social, behavioral, and metabolic factors were collected in each NHANES survey using standard methods. Deaths from CVD were ascertained from linkage to the National Death Index with follow-up through 2019. Results. Over an average of 9.4 years of follow-up, 2,589 CVD deaths were confirmed. 
The age and sex standardized rates of CVD mortality were 484.7 deaths per 100,000 person years in black participants, 384.5 deaths per 100,000 person years in white participants, 292.4 deaths per 100,000 person years in Hispanic participants, and 255.1 deaths per 100,000 person years in other race groups. In a multiple Cox regression analysis adjusted for all measured risk factors simultaneously, several social, unemployment, low family income, food insecurity, lack of home ownership, and unpartnered status, behavioral, current smoking, lack of leisure time physical activity, and sleep less than 6 or greater than 8 hours slash D, and metabolic, obesity, hypertension, and diabetes, risk factors were associated with a significantly higher risk for CVD death. After adjustment for these metabolic, behavioral, and social risk factors separately, hazard ratios of CVD mortality for black compared with white participants were attenuated from 1.54, 95% C, 1.34 to 1.77, to 1.34, C, 1.16 to 1.55, 1.31, C, 1.15 to 1.50, and 1.04, C, 0.90 to 1.21, respectively. Limitation. Causal contributions of social, behavioral, and metabolic risk factors to racial and ethnic disparities in CBD mortality could not be established. Conclusion. The black-white difference in CBD mortality diminished after adjustment for behavioral and metabolic risk factors and completely dissipated with adjustment for social determinants of health in the U.S. population. Next article is from September Issues of BMJ. Sensitivity, Specificity, and Diagnostic Accuracy of WHO 2013 Criteria for Diagnosis of Gestational Diabetes Mellitus in Low-Risk Early Pregnancies, International, Perspective, Multicenter Cohort Study. Objective to evaluate the predictability of gestational diabetes mellitus WTH a 75G Oral Glucose Tolerance Test, OGTT, in Early Pregnancy, based on the 2013 criteria of the World Health Organization, and to test newly proposed cutoff values. Design International, Perspective, Multicenter Cohort Study. Setting six university or cantonal departments in Austria, Germany, and Switzerland, from May 1, 2016 to January 31, 2019. Participants low-risk cohort of 829 participants aged 18 to 45 years with singleton pregnancies attending first trimester screening and can consenting to have an early 75 GOGTT 12 to 15 weeks of gestation. Participants and healthcare providers were blinded to the results. Main outcome measures fasting, 1-hour and 2-hour plasma glucose concentrations after an early 75 GOGTT 12 to 15 weeks of gestation and a late 75 GOGTT, 24 to 28 weeks of gestation. Results of 636 participants, 74, 12%, developed gestational diabetes mellitus, according to World Health Organization 2013 criteria, at 24 to 28 weeks of gestation. Applying WHO 2013 criteria to the early OGTT with at least one abnormal value gave a low sensitivity of 0.35, 95% confidence interval 0.24 to 0.47, high specificity of 0.96, 0.95 to 0.98, positive predictive value of 0.57, 0.41 to 0.71, negative predictive value of 0.92, 0.89 to 0.94, 
positive likelihood ratio of 10.46, 6.21 to 17.63, negative likelihood ratio of 0.65, 0.55 0.78, and diagnostic odds ratio of 15.98, 8.38 to 30.47. Lowering the postload glucose values, 75 GOGTT cutoff values of 5.1, 8.9, and 7.8 mL/L improve the detection rate 53%, 95% confidence interval 41% to 64%, and negative predictive value 0.94, 0.91 to 0.95, but decrease the specificity 0.91, 0.88 to 0.93, and positive predictive value 0.42. 0.32 to 0.53, at a false positive rate of 9%, positive likelihood ratio 5.59, 4.0 7.81, negative likelihood ratio 0.64, 0.52 0.77, 0 and diagnostic odds ratio 10.07, 6.26 18.31. . Conclusions The results of this prospective low-risk cohort study indicated that the 75GOGTT as a screening tool in early pregnancy is not sensitive enough when applying WHO 2013 criteria. Post-load glucose values were higher in early pregnancy complicated by diabetes in pregnancy. Lowering the post-load cutoff values identified a high-risk group for later development of gestational diabetes mellitus or those who might benefit from earlier treatment. Results from randomized controlled trials showing a beneficial effect of early intervention are unclear. Next we will discuss the article in the Lancet September issue. Value of intravenous thrombolysis in endovascular treatment for large vessel anterior circulation stroke, individual participant data meta-analysis of six randomized trials intravenous thrombolysis is recommended before endovascular treatment but its value has been questioned in patients who are admitted directly to centers capable of endovascular treatment. Existing randomized controlled trials have indicated non-inferiority of endovascular treatment alone or have been statistically inconclusive. We formed the Improving Reperfusion Strategies in Acute Ischemic Stroke Collaboration to assess non-inferiority of endovascular treatment alone versus intravenous thrombolysis plus endovascular treatment. We conducted a systematic review and individual participant data meta-analysis to establish non-inferiority of endovascular treatment alone versus intravenous thrombolysis plus endovascular treatment. We searched PubMed and Medline with the terms stroke, endovascular treatment, intravenous thrombolysis, and synonyms for articles published from database inception to March 9, 2023. We included randomized controlled trials on the topic of interest, without language restrictions. Authors of the identified trials agreed to take part, and individual participant data were provided by the principal investigators of the respective trials and collated centrally by the collaborators. Our primary outcome was the 90-day modified Rankin scale, MISSES, score. Non-inferiority of endovascular treatment alone was assessed using a lower boundary of 0 middle.82 for the 95% C around the adjusted common odds ratio, ACOR, for shift towards improved outcome analogous to 5% absolute difference in functional independence, with ordinal regression. We used mixed-effects models for all analyzes. This study is registered with Prospero, CRD 4202341186. We identified 1,081 studies, and 6 studies, and equals 2313, 
1,153 participants randomly assigned to receive endovascular treatment alone and 1,160 randomly assigned to receive intravenous thrombolysis and endovascular treatment were eligible for analysis. Variability between studies was small and mainly related to the choice and dose of the thrombolytic drug and country of execution. The median MISA score at 90 days was 3, IQR 1-5, for participants who received endovascular treatment alone and 2, 1-4, for participants who received intravenous thrombolysis plus endovascular treatment, ACOR 0 middle.89, 95% C0 middle.76 to 1 middle.04. Any intracranial hemorrhage, 0 middle.82, 0 middle.68 to 0 middle.99, occurred less frequently with endovascular treatment alone than with intravenous thrombolysis plus endovascular treatment. Symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage and mortality rates did not differ significantly. We did not establish non-inferiority of endovascular treatment alone compared with intravenous thrombolysis plus endovascular treatment in patients presenting directly at endovascular treatment centers. Also from the Lancet September issue, we will go over clinical and cost-effectiveness of nurse-delivered sleep restriction therapy for insomnia in primary care, habit, a pragmatic, superiority, open-label, randomized controlled trial. Insomnia is prevalent and distressing but access to the first-line treatment, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, is extremely limited. We aim to assess the clinical and cost-effectiveness of sleep restriction therapy, a key component of CBT, which has the potential to be widely implemented. We did a pragmatic, superiority, open-label, randomized controlled trial of sleep restriction therapy versus sleep hygiene. Adults with insomnia disorder were recruited from 35 general practices across England and randomly assigned, one-to-one, using a web-based randomization program to either four sessions of nurse-delivered sleep restriction therapy plus a sleep hygiene booklet or a sleep hygiene booklet only. There was no restriction on usual care for either group. Outcomes were assessed at 3 months, 6 months, and 12 months. The primary endpoint was self-reported insomnia severity at 6 months measured with the Insomnia Severity Index, ISI. The primary analysis included participants according to their allocated group and who contributed at least one outcome measurement. Cost-effectiveness was evaluated from the UK National Health Service and Personal Social Services perspective and expressed in terms of incremental cost per quality adjusted life year, QALY, gained. The trial was prospectively registered. Between August 29, 2018, and March 23, 2020 we randomly assigned 642 participants to sleep restriction therapy, N equals 321, or sleep hygiene, N equals 321. Mean age was 55 middle.4 years, range 19 to 88, with 489, 76 middle.2%, participants being female and 153, 23 middle.8%, being male. 580, 90 middle.3%, participants provided data for at least one outcome measurement. At 6 months, mean IC score was 10 middle.9, SD5 middle.5, for sleep restriction therapy and 13 middle.9, 5 middle.2, for sleep hygiene, adjusted mean difference 3 middle.05, 95% C3 middle.83 to 2 middle.28, P less than 0 middle.0001, Cohen's D0 middle.74, indicating that participants in the sleep restriction therapy group reported lower insomnia severity than the sleep hygiene group. 
The incremental cost per colleague gained was £2,076, giving a 95-middle.3% probability that treatment was cost-effective at a cost-effectiveness threshold of £20,000. Eight participants in each group had serious adverse events, none of which were judged to be related to intervention. Brief nurse delivered sleep restriction therapy in primary care reduces insomnia symptoms, is likely to be cost-effective, and has the potential to be widely implemented as a first-line treatment for insomnia disorder. Moving on to infectious diseases world, we will talk about article in Clinical Infectious Disease September issue side-by-side comparative study of the immunogenicity of the intramuscular and intradermal rabies post-exposure prophylaxis regimens in a cohort of suspected rabies virus-exposed individuals. All World Health Organization, WHO, pre-qualified rabies vaccines for humans are inactivated tissue culture rabies virus formulations produced for intramuscular, IM, administration. Due to costs and vaccine shortage, dose-saving intradermal, ID, administration of rabies post-exposure prophylaxis, PEP, is encouraged by WHO. This study compared the immunogenicity of the ID2 site, 3-visit Institut Pasteur Cambodge, IPC, PEP regimen to the IM1 site, 4-visit four-dose Essen regimen using Verorab vaccine, Sanofi. The development of neutralizing antibodies, and ABS, and T-cell response was assessed in 210 patients with a Category 2 or 3 animal exposure in a rabies endemic country. At day 28, all participants developed N-ABS, greater than or equal to 0. 5 IU per milliliter, irrespective of PEP scheme, age, or administration of rabies immunoglobulin. T-cell response and NAB titers were similar for both PEP schemes. This study demonstrated that the one-week ID IPC regimen is as effective as the two-week IM4 dose Essen regimen in inducing an anti-rabies immune response under real-life PEP. From Clinical Journal of the American Society of Nephrology September issue, Ferric carboxymaltose in iron-deficient patients with hospitalized heart failure and reduced kidney function. Background Reduced kidney function is common among patients with heart failure. In patients with heart failure and or kidney disease, iron deficiency is an independent predictor of adverse outcomes. In the AFFIRM AHF trial, patients with acute heart failure with iron deficiency treated with intravenous ferric carboxymaltose demonstrated reduced risk of heart failure hospitalization, with improved quality of life. We aim to further characterize the impact of ferric carboxymaltose among patients with coexisting kidney impairment. Methods The double-blind, placebo-controlled Affirma AHF trial randomized 1,132 stabilized adults with acute heart failure, left ventricular ejection fraction less than 50%, and iron deficiency. Patients on dialysis were excluded. The primary endpoint was a composite of total heart failure hospitalizations and cardiovascular death during the 52-week follow-up period. Additional endpoints included cardiovascular hospitalizations, total heart failure hospitalizations, and days lost to heart failure hospitalizations or cardiovascular death. For this subgroup analysis, patients were stratified according to baseline EECFR. Results Overall, 60% of patients had an EEG for less than 60 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters 2, the lower EEG for subgroup. These patients were significantly older, more likely to be female and to have ischemic heart failure, and had higher baseline serum phosphate levels and higher rates of anemia. For all endpoints, event rates were higher in the lower EEG for group. In the lower EEG for group, 
The annualized event rates for the primary composite outcome were 68.96 and 86.30 per 100 patient years in the ferric carboxymaltose and placebo arms, respectively, rate ratio 0.76, 95% confidence interval, 0.54 to 1.06. The treatment effect was similar in the higher eq for subgroup, rate ratio 0.65, 95% confidence interval, 0.42 to 1.02, p interaction equals 0.60. A similar pattern was observed for all endpoints, p interaction greater than 0.05. Conclusions In a cohort of patients with acute heart failure, left ventricular ejection fraction less than 50%, and iron deficiency, the safety and efficacy of ferric carboxymaltose were consistent across a range of for values. In American Journal of Hypertension September issue Intensive Blood Pressure Control and Cardiovascular Outcomes in Elderly Patients, a secondary analysis of SPRINT study based on a 60-year age cutoff was discussed. Background In the original SPRINT article, age was categorized at 75 years, which was contrary to many previous clinical trials which is at 60 years. Methods The SPRINT trial randomized 9,361 hypertensive patients to a target blood pressure of less than 120 versus less than 140 mm Hg, intensive versus standard treatment, respectively. Age was recategorized as less than 60 and greater than or equal to 60 years and hazard ratios, HRs, were calculated with 95% confidence intervals, Cs, for outcomes and adverse events. Results Intensive treatment reduced primary outcomes significantly in both less than 60 and greater than or equal to 60 years of age subgroups with a relative risk reduction, RRR, of 36% and 22%, respectively, an HR of 0.58, 95% C, 0.36 to 0.94 and 0.78, 95% C, 0.65 to 0.93, respectively. Although the intensive treatment rendered no effect on myocardial infarction in the overall comparison, it significantly reduced me in patients less than 60 years of age with an RRR of 58% and HR of 0.39, 95% C, 0.17 to 0.91. In the greater than or equal to 60-year age subgroup, reduced heart failure incidence was noted after intensive treatment, including death from other cardiovascular causes. However, these were not observed in the less than 60-year age subgroup. Intensive treatment resulted in significant hypotension, syncope, acute renal failure or acute kidney injury in the greater than or equal to 60-year age group. Conversely, the risk of these adverse effects in patients less than 60 years of age did not increase. Conclusions Intensive blood pressure control is beneficial for elderly patients, age greater than or equal to 60 years albeit with increased risk of adverse events. In the Journal of Rheumatology September issue Renal Histopathology Associated with Kidney Failure and Mortality in Patients with Lupus Nephritis, a long-term real-world data study was discussed. Objective Lupus Nephritis, LANE, a common manifestation of systemic lupus erythematosus, is associated with a higher risk of kidney failure and death. The renal pathology of Lane helps elucidate the severity of inflammation and the extent of irreversible damage. We aim to identify histologic variables that correlate with risks of kidney failure and mortality. Methods between 2006 and 2019, a total of 526 patients with Lane were enrolled. 
Renal pathology was classified according to the International Society of Nephrology slash Renal Pathology Society classification. Components of activity and chronicity indices were analyzed to determine which variables correlated with an increased risk of kidney failure and death, with the adjustment of potential confounders. Results during the follow-up period, median 7.5, IQR 3.5 to 10.7 years, 58 patients progressed to kidney failure and 64 died. In the multivariate Cox regression analysis, tubular atrophy, hazard ratio, HR, 2.28, 95% C1.66 to 3.14, and tubulointerstitial inflammation, HR 3.13, 95% C1.34 to 7.33, predicted kidney failure. The renal outcome was even worse if tubular atrophy and tubulointerstitial inflammation coexisted, 10-year kidney survival rate. 63.22%. The presence of cellular crescents was associated with an increased risk of death in male patients with Lane, HR 1.91, 95% C1.02 to 3.57, whereas the presence of fibrous crescents predicted death in female patients with Lane, HR 5.70, 95% C1.61 to 20.25. Conclusion histologic variables of renal biopsy in Lane could be regarded as prognostic indicators for kidney failure and mortality. In September issue of the chest albuterol budesonide pressurized meter dose inhaler in patients with mild to moderate asthma results of the Denali double-blind randomized controlled trial were discussed. Background In the Phase 3 Mundala trial, as needed albuterol budesonide pressurized meter dose inhaler significantly reduced severe exacerbation risk versus as needed albuterol in patients with moderate to severe asthma receiving inhaled corticosteroid containing maintenance therapy. This study, Denali, was conducted to address the U.S. Food and Drug Administration combination rule, which requires a combination product to demonstrate that each component contributes to its efficacy. Research question do both albuterol and budesonide contribute to the efficacy of the albuterol-budesonide combination pressurized meter dose inhaler in patients with asthma? Study Design and Methods This Phase 3 double-blind trial randomized patients aged greater than or equal to 12 years with mild to moderate asthma 1 to 1 colon 1 to 1 colon 1 to 4 times daily albuterol-budesonide 180-160G or 180-80G, albuterol-180G budesonide 160G, or placebo for 12 weeks. Dual primary efficacy endpoints included change from baseline in FEV1 area under the curve from 0 to 6 hours, FEV1 aux 0 6 hours, over 12 weeks, assessing albuterol effect and trough FEV1 at week 12, assessing budesonide effect. Results Of 1,001 patients randomized, 989 were greater than or equal to 12 years old and evaluable for efficacy. Change from baseline in FEV1 aux 06 hours over 12 weeks was greater with albuterol budesonide 180-160G versus budesonide 160G, least squares mean, LSM, difference, 80.7, 95% C, 28.4 to 132.9 milliliter, P equals 0 0.003. Change in trough FEV1 at week 12 was greater with albuterol budesonide 180-160 and 180-80G versus albuterol 180G, LSM difference, 132.8, 95% C, 63.6 to 201.9 milliliter and 120.8, 95% C, 51.5 to 190.1 milliliter, respectively, both P less than 0.001. 
Day 1 time to onset and duration of bronchodilation with albuterol budesonide were similar to those with albuterol. The albuterol budesonide adverse event profile was similar to that of the monocomponents. Interpretation Both monocomponents contributed to albuterol budesonide lung function efficacy. Albuterol budesonide was well tolerated, even at regular, relatively high daily doses for 12 weeks, with no new safety findings, supporting its use as a novel rescue therapy. In the September issue of the Journal of Oncology Cancer Screening in the United States during the second year of the COVID-19 pandemic was discussed. Purpose To examine whether cancer screening prevalence in the United States during 2021 has returned to pre-pandemic levels using nationally representative data. Methods Information on receipt of age-eligible screening for breast, women age 50 to 74 years, cervical, women without a hysterectomy age 21 to 65 years, prostate, men age 55 to 69 years, and colorectal cancer, men and women age 50 to 75 years, according to the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendations was obtained from the 2019 and 2021 National Health Interview Survey. Past year screening prevalence in 2019 and 2021 and adjusted prevalence ratios, APERS, 2021 versus 2019, with their 95% Cs were calculated using complex survey logistic regression models. Results Between 2019 and 2021, past year screening in the United States decreased from 59.9% to 57.1%, APER, 0.94, 95% C, 0.91 to 0.97, for breast cancer, from 45.3% to 39.0%, APER, 0.85, 95% C, 0.82 to 0.89, for cervical cancer, and from 39.5% to 36.3%, APER, 0.9, 95% C, 0.84 to 0.97, for prostate cancer. Declines were most notable for non-Hispanic Asian persons. Colorectal cancer screening prevalence remained unchanged because an increase in past year stool testing, from 7.0% to 10.3%, APER, 1.44, 95% C, 1.31 to 1.58, offset a decline in colonoscopy, from 15.5% to 13.8%, APER, 0.88, 95% C, 0.83 to 0.95. The increase in stool testing was most pronounced in non-Hispanic Black and Hispanic populations and in persons with low socioeconomic status. Conclusion Past year screening prevalence for breast, cervical, and prostate cancer among age-eligible adults in the United States continued to be lower than pre-pandemic levels in the second year of the COVID-19 pandemic, reinforcing the importance of return to screening health system outreach and media campaigns. The large increase in stool testing emphasizes the role of home-based screening during healthcare system disruptions. Next. Association between physical therapy frequency and post-acute care for a national cohort of patients hospitalized with pneumonia was published in September issue of the Journal of Hospital Medicine. Background Annually more than 300,000 patients hospitalized for pneumonia need post-acute care. Patients and systems prefer home discharge, but physical limitations often necessitate post-acute care. It is unknown whether frequency of physical therapy in the hospital affects post-acute care discharges. Objective. Examine the relationship between physical therapy visit frequency and disposition among a national sample of patients hospitalized with pneumonia. 
Designs Observational Cohort Study Setting Acute Care Hospital Participants Adult patients with primary diagnosis of pneumonia in the premier data set who received physical therapy in the hospital during a five-day window, with therapy on at least days one and five. Intervention Physical therapy visit frequency Main outcome and measures all Discharge disposition, home or post-acute care Results We included 18,886 patients from 595 hospitals. Just over half were discharged home, and equals 9,638, 51.0%, and 558, 2.95% died. Patients getting more frequent therapy were older, non-Hispanic white, treated in small non-teaching rural hospitals in the West, Midwest, or South, and had fewer severe illness indicators. In adjusted models, patients who received physical therapy on 100% of days were 7%, 95% confidence interval, 4.3 to 9.7, p less than 0.0001, more likely to go home than patients who received physical therapy on 40% of days. As a falsification test, we found that there was no relationship between physical therapy frequency and all-cause mortality. Physical therapy visit frequency was positively associated with discharge to home. Increasing visit frequency of physical therapy in hospitals might reduce the need for post-acute care, but randomized controlled trials are needed to confirm the effect.